listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast we started ahead of the 2022 federal to discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia more broadly. I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunwarung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Marcia Langton Ao. Marcia is a leading academic and Indigenous spokesperson who's held the Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne since February 2000. She is a powerful advocate for Indigenous rights, working as a consultant to a range of government and non-government organisations and has served on a number of committees and advisory bodies. I think it's fair to say that Marcia has been a driving force behind The Voice and also the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was initially read back in 2017. Marcia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Zoe. Now, it's the National Week of Action on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. There's been much debate already around the voice, and some would say that the No Camp has been pushing pretty hard over the last few weeks. I'm really pleased, though, to see the Yes campaign getting into full swing this week. And indeed, I held a community forum a few days ago which was absolutely packed with people who were interested to hear more about The Voice to try to understand it. And what we're doing today is to try to support that understanding. Could you just begin by telling us what The Voice is and why it's important for Indigenous Australians? Thanks, Zoe. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Mbantua or, or Alice Springs, and I acknowledge the Mbantarinya and their ancestors. Uh, the voice is proposed as a representative advisory body to give advice to the parliament and to government, and it would do so in a number of ways. So in the first instance, what Tom, Professor Tom Calmer and I uh recommended in the report devised by 52 people in three advisory groups in the last government, culminating in the Indigenous Voice co-design final report, was a a number of regional voice arrangements and we recommended up to 35 to uh, take account of uh, our demography, where our populations live, geography, some areas are vast and have small populations. Some areas are smaller and also have large populations like, say, Western Sydney or Townsville or Southeast Queensland. And uh, so we recommended up to 35 regional voice arrangements and that uh, each state and territory would then have an allocated number of uh, national voice representatives and it would be up to the regional voices to nominate their people to the national voice. Um, and the national voice uh, would have the role of advising parliament and the government, but only on national issues, not on local issues. We left that to the regional bodies 
to advise their state and territory governments. And so where an issue comes from a regional voice arrangement and has national significance, say, for instance, incarceration rates, which are truly horrifying, or uh, the rate of removal of Aboriginal children, again, truly horrifying, and and uh, both the result of lack of policy, idiot policies, and very little advice from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on how to solve the underlying problems. So the national voice would uh, be uh, the recipient of questions from the parliament or from government. Um, in the case of questions from the parliament, the voice would consult with people, obviously the regional voice arrangements, uh, the Coalition of Peaks, relevant Aboriginal organisations, experts, provide and provide written advice to answer the question and that written advice would be tabled with a parliamentary committee which would meet to consider the voice's advice. So that parliamentary committee would be much like the Bill Scrutiny Committee or the Human Rights Committee and all the other committees that presently uh, deal with uh, legislation before uh, it, it, it's debated in the, in the House of Reps and the Senate. Now, in the case of ongoing policy problems, which roll on and on and on, say, for instance, family and domestic violence, uh, the voice might, uh, of its own accord, advise the parliament and government and provide written advice. Uh, and what we uh, hope and, and recommended is that written advice from the voice to parliament or or say a secretary of a department or a, an interdepartmental committee would be responded to in writing. Um, and, and so you'd have a dynamic process of advice that, that clearly and straightforwardly involves Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives tasked, uh, under the voice legislation to, uh, to give such advice. Now, there's a lot of debate about all of that, but you can read our report for the details. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, well nigh time for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a real say in these matters that are the business of government every day and which impact us and which harm us. So, mm. you, you know, a lot of people have spoken about the Northern Territory Emergency Intervention Legislation in 2007. And, you know, that's resulted in a disastrous situation in the Northern Territory. But the most recent example is the sudden sunset clause ending of the Stronger Futures legislation. So that came to a sudden halt despite pleas and advice from many Aboriginal organisations in the Northern Territory. And as a result, uh, there was nothing in place despite all the advice to provide transitional arrangements and now, you know, you have this dramatic and shocking increase in hospitalizations for assault, an increase in violence, uh, children wandering the street at night. Uh, and, and much is made of all of this, uh, by, you know, the media 
who wanted to depict Aboriginal people as undeserving of having a say, you know, and we can't, according to Dutton, have a say until we solve the domestic violence problems, as if the rest of the country isn't facing exactly the same situation, although ours are worse. But, you know, here we are with this problem. And Alice Springs is not the only place where uh, this is a problem. You've seen what's going on over in Western Australia at the moment in places like Carnarvon. And, you know, we've documented this in our research. Uh, I work with researchers at the University of Melbourne and we've documented this for Kununurra. Yeah. For, and, you know, other places in Australia. So tell me, uh, Marcia, uh, how having the voice will help close the gap, but I was also going to say help bridge that gap between community and decision makers in order to lead to better practical outcomes. Why do you think that this approach will deliver better outcomes? Okay, so there are some serious flaws in policy developed specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or in other policies that affect us. Take, for instance, uh, and, you know, I dealt with this yesterday. A woman was inquiring, what do I do about my friend who's a victim of domestic violence, serious domestic violence? Uh, She can't get any legal assistance because the perpetrator has gone to the legal service first and he is being represented and there's nobody to represent her. So the victims are always penalised in this way. And so we need a specific uh, provision in policy and legislation for victims of domestic violence so that they aren't uh, further victimised by the legal system that does not provide them with uh, the legal assistance that pretty much automatically goes to the perpetrator. Mm. Um, And then the woman having no assistance is then faced with becoming homeless and losing her children to child protection, and in many jurisdictions that happens automatically. And so an entire family is destroyed because the policy settings are wrong. So in the case of the voice... In the case of, sorry to interrupt, but in the case of the voice being in place then in the context of that kind of repeating situation, how would you see the voice practically working to tell parliamentarians like myself and the other MPs what needs to happen? So domestic violence uh, and family violence and, you know, along with incarceration and removal of children, are matters dealt with at the state and territory jurisdiction level, not by the Commonwealth. But what we need is harmonisation of laws and reform of laws across the country so that they're consistent. Um, and the Commonwealth should be advised by the voice to lead a reform process uh, as, it, as it did with... Uh, um, apprehended violence orders to make them um, equally uh, enforceable across state borders. So that happened some years ago, and that needs to happen with other aspects of uh, service responses to domestic and family violence victims 
and these laws need to be consistent across the country, across all jurisdictions. Mm. And the voice could could provide uh, all of that advice to the Commonwealth Parliament and the Commonwealth Parliament could lead the reform process through the National Cabinet. So that's just an example that I'm concerned about, but there are many, many others in which we just don't get a say at all. We're just dealt out by all the other advisory bodies um, who talk over the top of us, don't listen to us, don't invite us, uh, and, and, you know, it's now become desperate. I mean, people are saying, and rightly so, that lives are at risk because of this policy mess. Mm. We urgently need to fix this. This is not just about closing the gap. This is about saving lives right now. Could I put a few sort of quick-fire questions to you around some of the points of contention, if I could call it that, in regard to The Voice? Number one, there's not enough detail. The federal opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has been wanting more detail. Other members of the community, indeed, I ran a community forum earlier this week. There was talk of the detail. What's your response to that? I've said it I don't know how many times, probably thousands of times. Please read the Calma Langton report. Simply Google in Indigenous Voice Co-Design and you'll be taken straight to the Indigenous Voice Co-Design final report. Now, sure, it's 260 pages long, but even Ken Wyatt advised Peter Dutton recently that there's a summary on pages 16 to 19, and I just looked at those pages again today myself. Uh, and, you know, I don't think it's uh, a genuine request from Peter Dutton to put the detail on the table. I think this is a, uh, a strategy for undermining the voice. He knows very well what the detail is. Uh, so there's two points to make about that. He saw this detail twice when he was in Cabinet because our interim report and our final report went to Cabinet. And the government that he served in under Scott Morrison when he was Prime Minister had the opportunity to legislate the voice. They declined to do so. They had the opportunity to uh, uh, propose a referendum. They declined to do so. So he knows very well what the uh, situation is. And there was total silence on our final report uh, when it was sent to Cabinet, when it was taken to Cabinet by Ken Wyatt when he was the minister. Mm. Um, so, you know, this uh, is a ruse. But secondly, there's the, the second thing is Peter Dutton never asks us for the for the detail. He put 15 questions to the Prime Minister, not to us. He's been studiously avoiding the members of the referendum working group and instead of asking us questions, what he did was harangue us. So again he repeated his shibboleth that when he walked out of the national apology to the Stolen Generations 15 years ago, he did so because his, he was, his life experience, he said, was shaped by being in the police force, and he had to deal with a, a deceased woman from Palm Island as a police officer, and it's a terrible story and nobody should have to deal with it. But he said this to us on the referendum working group, and most of us have dealt with situations like this in our lives many times over, in fact, year in and year out, and he's saying to us, I'm just really traumatised by having to deal with that so I can't do anything that you want because you haven't ended domestic violence. Well, hello, 
What about Hannah and her two kids? Why don't you fix that problem, Peter? I would like to tell you, Marcia, that I have your Indigenous Voice Co-Design process report sitting right here and I, I have had a good look through it and I would urge everyone to Google it and, indeed, even if you don't have time to read it, there's a whole lot of very good graphics which go to some of the description that Marcy has given. Um, and the other thing is that there's a book which is everything you need to know about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and I think it's been reissued as everything you need to know about the voice referendum and that's a very handy and very readable document as well. Marcy, can I take you to a couple of the other questions people are asking? One's about would the voice affect sovereignty um, and indeed then there's a secondary question which is that some Indigenous leaders say it doesn't go far enough in recognising sovereignty. Is sovereignty an issue in this conversation? Uh, the sovereignty has nothing to do with this conversation. It's a completely separate issue. And uh, in any case, you know, uh, I think the way that uh, some people on the far left and, you know, many ordinary people you throw around these terms uh, is is highly uninformed. So sovereignty is a term that comes from European history, from the creation of nation states, uh, and it's a Westphalian concept, whereas, you know, Indigenous polities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander polities, were not created in an age of imperialism to rule over classes of people to resolve the problems of royal families in suppressing their peasants. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander polities are distinct and unique or sui generis polities, and they operate in their own way. And I think actually, you know, it's really encouraging to see the High Court starting to understand this issue. So in the Love and Tom's case, the High Court realised that those uh, Indigenous people who'd been incarcerated uh, and were about to be deported because they had one parent from an overseas country, uh, such as New Zealand or New Guinea, um, did in fact, because they had an Indigenous parent and lineage, have an unbroken tie to, to places in Australia. And it's what's called a spiritual affiliation. So if we understand sovereignty uh, as uh, our far left comrades see it, in that sense, that is abiding and unbreakable and the voice in no way affects it. Can I go to another question that's popped up in the last couple of weeks, weeks which is whether the voice will interact directly with the executive or the parliament as a whole or both and why has that become an issue? Um, okay, well, let me just go to the second part of the previous question, and that is, does the voice go far enough? Well, I think it does, and it has a very specific role, and it's not the only uh, part of the reform package that's proposed by the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which also proposes a makarata or treaty commission and truth-telling. And I think people are too quick uh, to, to rubbish the, the voice as an advisory body without understanding exactly how it would work and what it would advise on. 
Now, let's just look at this problem of executive government. Well, in all of our work, the voice co-design work, we've advised that the voice should advise parliament and the government because a policy is not, you know, concocted or cooked in a, in a couple of days and then tabled in parliament as a bill. A policy might take years to develop. In any case, you might have uh, already have legislation and it's been operating for some time, say the Native Title Act, and you might want an amendment to improve its operation or to allow for certain things to happen. And that policy development will come from Native Title holders, prescribed bodies, corporate, the National Native Title Council and others, and uh, it might have taken some time to develop that policy and they would have been in contact with the Attorney General's Department and Indigenous Affairs over some years, and I can think of a number of amendments to the Native Title Act that have worked like this, it would be far too late to get a bill changed in the House at the last minute, and so therefore you have to take into account all the work on policy that takes place in government prior to a bill being drafted. And so it's just common sense that this is how the government works, this is how policy becomes legislation. And this, this is obviously the case with domestic and family violence. I think there's very little understanding of that, of how policy development is actually done and what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, that's a food for thought for another conversation, Marcia. But just as we sort of close off this chat, we could talk all day about this, but what, what kind of impact do you think a voice would have on the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians? Well, many people are saying this would be a healing experience And I totally agree with that. We saw how healing, oh, we saw the healing effect of the national apology to the stolen generations. For a decade, John Howard and his cronies bleated about how, you know, they were not going to apologise. There was nothing to apologise for. They were rescued generations. And, you know, they simply stuck to uh, a paternalistic and, uh, frankly, um, dishonest account of history uh, to protect certain people in their constituencies. And, you know, it's pretty clear who they're protecting. They're protecting the biological fathers on the cattle stations and police stations around Australia who fathered children who were then removed to institutions. So they were sticking up for their mates who didn't want to be outed as biological fathers of children who went into institutions as stolen children. That's why they lied for 10 years. And when the apology finally happened, and, you know, I was at Parliament House, uh, it was so healing. It, it, it was what the victims of the stolen generations were waiting for. It validated them. It had a huge impact on their families. And the tens of thousands of Australians around the world who watched the National Apology also felt healed by it. They felt that, you know, we were coming together as a people and we were able to get over the terrible things in our past. And, you know, we say to our own children who've done something really bad, apologise for that. And we expect them to apologise. And an apology is a real thing. We use it in in raising our children to get children to understand what is right and wrong. And clearly taking children away was wrong. So we can fix the immoral uh, 
acts that occurred in our history in terms of, you know, creating a nation which can live with its past by having a voice, that is, giving Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, a place in our national fabric, in our parliament, in our government, in the most minimal of ways as an advisory body, and and uh, such an honourable place will then give other Australians the feeling of, look, they're only 3% of the population, you know, we almost wiped them off the face of the earth, but now they can have a say and, you know, they just want to fix the problems that colonisation has caused. White people have got it so wrong for so long. Let's hear what they have to say. And whenever that happens, and you'll hear people saying this, whenever I listened to an Aboriginal person explain it to me, and once I understood, my eyes were opened, and then you can move on and fix problems. It gets rid of the guilt that the nation has about our past. People don't like to admit it, but that is a huge factor in our national makeup. We can get past all of that and heal and become a nation that is based not just on British traditions, not just on accommodating the migrants through our multicultural policies, but also based on 65,000 years of history and the Indigenous people who carry those traditions. Marcia, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Zoe. Professor Marcia Langton-Ao, who is the co-author of the Indigenous Voice Co-Design Final Report, joining us today to talk about The Voice. And thank you for joining Find Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au and if you enjoyed this episode leave a review we'd love to hear from you this podcast is authorized by zoe daniel 677 nepean highway brighton east victoria 